Um, as we're doing our opening and getting our preparation ready, we're also going to lift up a blessing for our young people who'll be leaving for their classes. But we have a <coughs> great honor <coughs> and privilege to have a canon of Scripture that is complete. We, we so easily take it for granted. We work with people in a lot of countries that uh, do not have a Bible of their own. And so the very fact that we've got... How many have more than one? Okay, so we go home and figure out which one we're going to read. Or maybe we just go home and don't think about which one we're going to read. But we've got <clears throat> plenty of them. And we work with people in all different countries, many different countries. Many are persecuted. If you don't have a Bible of their own, can't afford one. So to be able to give them one is a great um, privilege and blessing to do that. But on the other side of the coin is we take it so much for granted what we do have. And we have a completed canon of Scripture put together by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, written from five different continents. And we just take this thing for granted because it has a message that is, that is one that runs all the way through it. It is a coherent message. It's a complete message. It is a message that is one that will indeed bless us in many different ways. We're supposed to read it through a verse at a time. Line upon line, precept upon precept, as it says in Isaiah. Precept upon precept means a topic at a time. That's how we're supposed to read it. That's how we're supposed to study it. Now, we don't often think about that as we approach the Bible, but the Bible is a unit that's a category. So we're going to get ready to study the Bible this morning. And in the process, we're going to lift up a prayer for our young people. But uh, if you've if you've come, first of all, if you've not accepted Christ as your Savior, that's where you need to start. Because spiritual things are spiritually understood according to 1 Corinthians 2. So if you're not a believer, it, you can understand that David was king in Jerusalem, but the spiritual significance you'll always have trouble with. So <clears throat> for us to understand it, we have to be a believer, and we have to want to learn. You know, it's, it's, it's easy to teach somebody that wants to learn, but people don't want to learn. It's, it, you can't pound it into their head. So <clears throat> we've come together in a little time of silent prayer to be sure we are ready to go in front of the throne of grace and to be taught uh, what the Word has to say by itself. So let us take this time. It's important. It's a time of silent prayer between you and the Lord to get yourself ready. So let us, uh, let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we can't imagine the blessings that you have already poured out upon us in the Beloved. And Father, we, uh, we had a wonderful blessing this morning getting to spend some time with, uh, with more of our brothers and sisters we don't often get to spend time with. We thank you for them. We thank you for their ministry. We thank you indeed for, for the blessing that we've had of sharing this time together. And Father, we thank you for your word, that you have preserved it throughout history so that it is just as relevant today as the day in which it was written. And Father, we know that from reading it, that these times in which we live, it's becoming more and more relevant. So Father, I pray that you will bless all of us today. I pray that you'll bless the children as they go to their classes. 
Bless the teachers that they may teach them well. And make the, let the children be receptive to hear the message of truth that you have given to a lost and dying world. Father, we ask you to sanctify this manna this morning and nourish our souls with it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. May be dismissed. And we're at Revelation 14.1. Now this, I, I love banners because they make things simpler. And then I've got a, a stick <laughs> that I use. when I, If I get to go overseas, it's fun to do this stick because I bring this out and a lot of them have been to schools where they get whacked with it or their parents used it on them. So I bring this out and they start leaning back like that. But I like this because I'm short and I can point with it. So it's uh, this is kind of a layout of the book of Revelation. It's also a layout of end times, the last days. And it's a, and as I mentioned, there are copies of that on the back. Everything is free on that back table. Leave the tables, but you can take anything else that's there. Now, Revelation 1, we heard about the one who was and is and is to come. We just sang about him. The, the songs, we didn't conspire on this, but could not really have been more relevant than what we're going to study today. And I want to put this into a time frame of, of what we're looking at because Revelation chapter 2 and 3 starts out with churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It says that to all seven churches. But then the church disappears in the book of Revelation of chapter 19. It's gone. Revelation 4 and 5 is a scene in heaven right after the rapture of the church. And they were singing, guess what? The Revelation song. Isn't that a great song? Holy is the Lord God. Revelation 4 and 5, the scene in heaven right after the rapture. Who are they looking for? Someone worthy to open the seals and pour out the judgments of the tribulation. The seal judgments are pictures of events that are going to be going on throughout the tribulation. The four horsemen of the apocalypse we hear so much about is the way the Antichrist is going to try to spread his message. He'll have a message of peace. Also confirmed in 1 Thessalonians 5, the last days are going to a massive peace movement. He's going to have this message. He's going to use rationing. He later is going to install a mark, which we've all heard about, the mark of the beast and the warning, don't take the mark of the beast. And that's part of what the, the seven seals are. These are things going to go on throughout the tribulation. That will include martyrdom because after the rapture, there's going to be an angel come through and give the gospel to the whole world. Revelation 14.6. That's next Sunday's message. The, the, he gives the gospel to the whole world. People are going to be saved. I suspect people are still going to be looking up. Because when does the angel come through? Well, they're going to be... If I, I know it, every one out of six people profess to be a Christian on the planet. I don't think there's that many. But one out of six profess to be a Christian. There's going to be a noticeable difference <laughs> in the number of people that are, that are here after the rapture. And they're taking out this first angel does. Then there are two witnesses, according to Revelation 11, that comes on the scene. Now, Revelation is laid out topically. It has a chronological base to it, but it is laid out topically, and that's important. Jewish thought often runs in the sense of we think in topics. They will give the bottom line and then the reasons. 
Greeks give the reasons, and then they give the bottom line. We think left to right, they think right to left. Uh, we think they're backwards. They think we're backwards. <laughs> Will the heavenly language be Hebrew? I don't know. God's going to set it up and establish it. I just know we won't have the language barriers that we have today. These two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, are going to come back, minister in the desert south of Jerusalem, shut up the skies, generally make everybody on the planet mad at them because they're going to mess with the environment. I think it's Moses and Elijah that comes back, the law and the prophet, my two witnesses, I think, to the, wit, to the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the two that are back there. Then the 144,000. And I'm getting to this because there's 144,000 but there's 144,000 over here, too. The 144,000 are male, virgin, Jews from every tribe except the tribe of Dan. Now, a lot of people have talked about the 144,000. A lot of people are trying to work their way into the 144,000. These are male, virgin, Jews. That's what the book says, so I'll stick with the book. And they, except Dan, people say, well, Dan no longer exists. But I beg to differ because Ezekiel 40 through 48 in the Millennial Kingdom, the tribe of Dan's got a place by the temple. So they're still there. They evidently just didn't have 12,000 male virgin Jews to fill up the quotas. And they're going to get a seal, the seal of God on their foreheads. We've already been through and studied that. The name of the Lord their God. These two guys in red are the Antichrist and the false prophet. The beast out of the sea, the beast out of the land. And they're antagonists to the good guys up here. And they're going to fight with them. Now this gives a simple layout, seven literal years, 2,520 days biblically. And so that's the way the chart is laid out and the way it, the way it fits. Now... This is where I was trying to get. Revelation 7, the sealing of the 144,000, happens right after the rapture of the church. I don't know how long it will take to do it. What I do know, there will be quotas filled up of the 12,000 uh, from each of the 12 tribes of Israel except, except Dan. That's what it says. Now, we're going to look at Revelation 14. Because Revelation 7 was a series of uh, topics, and one of which included the 144,000. Revelation 14 is going to pick up the same topic, but it's at a different time frame. We know it's at a different time frame because of locations. As you study the Bible, there's some basic things to remember. You have to ask of every passage you look at, who, what, when, where, why, and how. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? These are simple literary things that we should learn in school. Who are they talking to? Who's talking? Who are they talking to? Very important because if we identify the pronouns based on the uh, noun that is named, if we identify the pronouns, it'll clarify a lot of things for us. What are they saying precisely as accurately as you can get it? When is it going to happen? Some things were going on right there at the very time. Other things were prophesied that would happen later. The book of Revelation, I believe, is a summary of all the unfulfilled prophecies of the previous 65 books. 
It's a summary. Because if you look at Babylon, Revelation 17, Revelation 18, you find that Babylon's talked about a lot in the Bible. It'll go all the way back to Genesis 11. But the Babylon's talked about in Revelation 17 and 18, those are fascinating too because they're talked about in Isaiah 13, Isaiah 21, uh, Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 47 too. Don't want to leave that one out. Five chapters to give explanation to Revelation 17 and 18. So Revelation is a summary of the unfulfilled prophecies left in the Bible. And I, the, the book tells you that if you just don't blow through the first three verses. Blessed are those who read and hear the words of the book of this prophecy. The book is called a prophecy. It's all prophetic. It uses the singular in chapter 22. Those who read and hear the words of the book of this prophecy. It is a whole bunch of different events and it deals with one prophecy. I believe the prophecy is ha, what's, what's, what's the word? Ha, Yabu. He's coming back. <laughs> That's the prophecy. It all runs into that. And once he comes back, what's he going to do? But it's all interconnected. And it's very, the Bible, if it's a singular, it means a singular. If it's a plural, it means a plural. You know, the promise was given to Abraham seed, according to Galatians, not seeds, as it says. And Paul made a big deal about it because of the Holy Spirit. We should too. Now, what about the lamb? The end of chapter 13 was the prophecy of the beast out of the land, the false prophet. We identified him last week. It closes out with this great verse everybody loves. Here's wisdom. Let him who has a mind calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Now, uh, we dealt with some of that last week by Gematria. They assign letters, they assign numbers to letters. They take those and a lot of them will go like the word, like 786. 7 plus 8 plus 6 is 7 plus 8 is 15 plus 6 is 21. 2 plus 1 is 3. Therefore, it is a sign of the Trinity. Do you see a problem with that maybe? Yeah. When people start doing that to the Bible, you have to be very careful about the things that they come up with in the process. But this is 666. My question is, this was written in Greek. So are they Greek letters? Is it the name of the person in the Greek letters? Or is it the name of the person in the Hebrew letters? How about the name of the person in the English letters? Or why not German? Why can't we put these in? We start trying to calculate this, this side of the rapture. All we've got is rampant speculation, and we've got way too much of that as it is. But after the rapture, they're going to know who it is. And this is going to be a secondary proof to it. You'll be able to take his, his name, whatever it is, and add it up in whatever language it is. They'll, they'll know. Anyway, this will be a secondary proof. The primary proof will be in his message. His message is going to be one of, I believe, offering Godhood. Now here we are in 14, the 144,000. Isn't that an exciting topic? I'm, I'm sure you, you all have heard of the 144,000. And it says, and I looked, this is John, 
Isle of Patmos, 96 A.D. I looked, and behold, Greek idu. It's an aorist active imperative of harao. The word harao means take a good look at something. Selah, pause word. Uh, it, to me, that's kind of what it means. Pause. Stop and think about what's just been said. Okay? Behold is much the same thing. Okay? You're getting ready to see something, so don't give it a blepo glancing blow. Give it a hurrah good look at it. When it says, Behold, I looked and behold the Lamb. That's why I love the songs today. The Lamb. Now, the beast out of the land had two horns like a lamb. Verse 11 of the last chapter. But guess what? He was a counterfeit. Here is the lamb that we know as Jesus, Yeshua, HaMashiach. And behold, the lamb was standing. Now, the neat thing about original language is you get a little bit deeper glimpse. Because this is the word histami, the normal common word for stand, but it's in a perfect tense. The aorist tense have been what you'd expect. He was standing. There he was. Okay, but when it puts it in the perfect tense, he was standing. Like, bring it on. He had taken his stand. He was there. He had landed with results that are going to go on forever. He had basically shaken the universe when this happens. The Lamb uh, was standing on Mount Zion. Did we just sing about that a little earlier? Zion's only used seven times in the New Testament. It's used 156 times in the Old Testament. It's uh, Mount Zion, and the Old Testament's mentioned 70 times. But this is the only reference to Mount Zion in the book of Revelation. It's believed to be a hill on the southwest part of Jerusalem, previously occupied in the tribulation prior to the Lamb standing here, previously occupied by the King of the North in the siege of Jerusalem. We touched on that a bit in the first session. And it says, And with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Now, at the second advent, see, they got sealed after the rapture, right? They got the name of God on their foreheads. And now, when does this happen? When does he stand on Mount Zion? When does he come back? Jesus first sets foot on the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem. When he comes back, Zechariah 14. Turn there with me if you would. This is an absolutely phenomenal set of verses. See, he's coming back, I believe, at the rapture. And he's going he's gonna to take those that are his home, the bride he's going to take home, to his father's house in the traditional oriental wedding uh, ceremony. He's going to take them back. But then we're all going to come back, chapter 19, to do that. Well, this is an event that's going to happen at the second advent in conjunction with chapter 19. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. Talking to the Jews here. Verse 2 of Zechariah 14. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now, we saw a map earlier of... Uh, every one of the nations are gathered there. King of the north is laying siege to Jerusalem. The king of the south has been destroyed. King of the west is in the valley of Esdraelon, where Megiddo is. Kings of the east are at the south end of the Dead Sea. 
everybody's ready to fight. That's what's going to happen. And they are there to destroy the remnant of the Jews. That's why they have gathered. I'll gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. Houses plundered, women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. It's basically saying at the end times, just before Jesus returns, Yeshua, just, just before, the remnant of the Jews is holed up in Jerusalem. And they're laying siege to it. Have the Jews ever been under siege before? Oh boy. Then the Lord will go forth. Don't you let, listen to this. He will go forth and fight against those nations. Now, does this say the Lord and his armies? I, I don't see armies here. The armies come back with him, chapter 19. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as what he stands on a day of battle. Isn't that the way the groom does for the bride? He protects her at all costs. Aren't we the bride? Yeah. We're not fighting the battle. He's fighting the battle. As he fights on a day of battle, and in that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. Now, think about that a second. They're backed up against a wall. Like once they were backed up, what? Against a sea. Right? What did he do with the sea? He split it. What does he do to the mountain? He splits it. He splits it in half, and the Jews run through, and he fights. Okay, That's what it says. So that half of the mountain, in case you miss the from east to west by a very large mountain, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half toward the south. The Lord's kind of putting this on the line, isn't he? You're probably going to have somebody out there, some surveyor out there with a surveyor's tool. I'm going to see if it's really east-west or if he's turned this around some other way. And you will flee, you is the remaining Jews, second advent, will flee by the valley of my mountains. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Atzel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. As you read through the book of Revelation, you see the different times in which that occurs. Luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day that is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night will come about at evening time. There's going to be light at evening time. Is this specific prophecy or what? I mean, this is this is just right in there with as specific as you can possibly get. He says, this is what's going to happen. The Lord's reputation is staked on these things. He said it, he had it recorded, and he has preserved it. Now, Zechariah's exilic, 600 years before Christ, this has been around... 2,600 years, not yet fulfilled. Do you believe the Lord will do it? Or are you one of the lazy ones Peter mentions in Second Peter 3? says, everything proceeds as it was since the beginning. Now, when it's time, it's time. 
And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. He's talking second advent clearly, isn't he? Half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. It'll be a summer as well as winter. Now, this is the victory celebration of the, of the Lamb that we're seeing right here, the 144,000. He lands on one mountain, then he kills his enemies. And then he ends up on Mount Zion to establish his holy kingdom. After the military victory, he sets up his throne on Mount Zion, his holy mountain. Psalm 2, verses 4 to 6 he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he'll speak to them in his anger. He'll terrify them in his fury. But as for me, the capital M, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Isaiah 59. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. As we saw, the king of the west sees coming to Jerusalem to defend the Jews, so-called, because of the unbelieving Jews, because of the covenant that he made with them. King of the north is laying siege to them. Kings of the east. And what did Psalm 2 say? They're going to come from the west, the east. From the rising of the sun, kings of the east, He'll come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. And though to those who turn from transgression in Jacob declares the Lord. And as for me, my covenant is with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. He's talking about a time's never been. Because they've been restored before. But they have not ever been at a point where the Lord's words are in their mouth. He says, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now and forever. When he sets up this millennial kingdom, this has eternal ramifications. It's done. And the thousand years are not going to be dispersed again and brought back together again. No. Once this is done, it's done. The sheep and the goats are going to be separated. He's going to bring everybody from all over the planet into that one area. That's the Matthew 25 passage, the separation of the sheep and the goats. The sheep are going to inherit the kingdom. The goats are going to be cast into the lake of fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. He's going to clean the earth out. He's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And the millennial kingdom is going to start with human beings just like you and I who have survived the tribulation and they are going to go in and repopulate the earth in the millennial kingdom. You and I will get the blessing of coming back in bodies that won't wear out. Now see, it's enough blessing to come back but the older we get in a body that won't wear out, <laughs> what a deal. And you know, in that body, we can sit down and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm looking forward to that. We can say hello to David. Hey, David, what got into your head when you were, you know, Abraham, where did you come up with, say, she is my sister. Say you're my sister so they won't kill me. You were a weenie, weren't you? I mean, we'll sit down and we can, you know what, so good, we can eat anything we want. There is no dietary code in the millennial kingdom. We'll be having a great feast in the millennial king. Anyway, 
I could preach about that. All 144 sealed male virgin Jews are going to make it through the tribulation. Revelation 7, 4 to 8 is where they were sealed, where they were called. But look at what it says. 144,000 with the Lamb on Mount Zion. They survived. Now, for mankind, the issue is the name and the number. Remember the last verse we had about the number 666? Yeah, it's the name, the name that is above all names, but the number right here is 144,000, not 666. So, it's a matter of who you're going to follow, who you're going to choose throughout the tribulation. The same thing as it's been throughout history. Are you going to choose to serve the Almighty that spoke and brought the heavens into existence, or are you going to choose to serve yourself? What are you going to choose? The second verse and I heard a voice out of heaven. This is the word phone, the word for voice. They translate it voice and sound uh, in this in this because it's a very generic word. Heard a voice from heaven and the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now the voice is the fathers. Came out of the heaven, right? Why? Because the sun's on the earth. The sun is now on Mount Zion. He's the, the Father and the Son sound alike. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. These little things, you know, that kind of gets put in every now and then, you think are kind of innocuous and they don't mean anything. Think again. Chapter 1, 14 chapters ago, and his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze. And when it, like what it has been caused to glow in a furnace... And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Who are we talking about? Voice comes out of heaven. Okay. And who's talking in chapter 1? The Son. The Father and the Son's voice are alike. Now that's pretty cool, I think. The sound of angels' wings is like the sound of the Almighty. Ezekiel 1.24 I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, as it says. A sound of tumult like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. This is Ezekiel. And when his first vision that he's saying, and he goes, He's just blown away, just like we are when we read this. If we could remotely connect with Ezekiel long enough to get a picture of what this was like, wow. The glory of the Lord is getting ready to fill the temple when this happens. Ezekiel 43, 2, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. See, a great multitude is finally going to get in tune with the voice of the Lord. Revelation 19.6, I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That's chapter 19. What happened to the first five verses, pop quiz? The bride comes back with the groom. We're going to sing together in harmony. The many waters denote the power and the extent of the voice. Think about the, the what is it talking about? The power of the voice and the extent. His voice 
is also like thunder. John 12:29. The multitude therefore who stood by and heard it was saying that it had thundered. I, I, don't you just you love and hate passages like this? Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was said earlier, not John 12. In whom I am well pleased. A voice out of heaven said that. And they thought it had thundered. Others are saying an angel spoke to him. Kind of the two different groups, isn't it? What I'm trying to make sense out of something I can't make sense out of. The voice of the Almighty. And the other one going... I'm not quite sure, but I know what it sounds like. God's voice is loud, distinctive, echoing, and it's designed to get our attention. Now you start thinking about that. Somebody says, well, I think God spoke to me. If he speaks to you, I don't think you'll think God spoke to you. Because when he talks, he talks very plainly, very clearly, he doesn't mumble. He doesn't slur any of his words. And he speaks it all in, a, every perf, in every language perfectly. When he talks, what was that old thing? When he talks, everybody listens. That old investment banker, whatever it was. Revelation 4, verses 5 and 6. From the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God when God speaks it's clear God's voice is going to be active in the tribulation we see it there several times the word voice is used in revelation ten of the twelve times the word thunder is used in the new testament it's found in the book of revelation God's voice is going to be quite active. The point here is that God's voice is the background music of history. So we better pay attention to the score. Those notes that we're to read are to come from the voice of God who has spoken through His Spirit to have His, His Word inscripturated. So that we've, we've got it here. Yeah, we've got questions. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. But... Uh, I think it was the, that great theologian Mark Twain as you know he was an agnostic but he actually had a couple of things to say that were pretty good and, and uh, one of them was they asked him are you concerned ab about uh, what you don't know about the Bible he says I'm actually more concerned about what I do know about the Bible you know when God's voice speaks he spoke and brought the heavens into existence, didn't he? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. Wow. Now the 144,000 knew the song. They knew the score. It says, And they sang a new song. There's two different words for new. One is, is naos, that means new in respect to time. The other is kainos, that means new in respect to quality. And this is a quality song. They sang a new song. We knew about it already. They sang it in Revelation 4 and 5, and, and the Rosh Hashanah worship team sang the Revelation. They sang... 
They is the 144,000. A new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And that takes us back to chapter 4. And no one could learn the song. Now, you some are saying, well, wait a minute, are they in heaven? No, because you put more pieces of the puzzle together. What happens at the second advent? The heavens are opened so that the ark and the tabernacle, which is in heaven, becomes visible. Wow. This is, the, this is the time we're talking about. We're putting pieces together. You see the picture forming here? Absolutely phenomenal. And it says, no one could learn the song. Learn is the word manthano. A lot of different words for learn. This is, means to learn as a disciple. Okay? Because this was special to them. No one could learn the song except the 144,000. There's other disciples, but not like the 144,000. This was a special song of quality for them. Who had been purchased, is our word redeemed, agarazzo. And I, I, again, these subtle little things that just flow on by. This is a perfect tense. They've been purchased forever. That's what that perfect tense is about. Purchased forever from the earth. So this choir had a song that God gave to them alone, a song of victory in the angelic conflict. They faced it. It's their theme song. They had exclusive rights to it, is what it is telling it. You say, well, that's kind of selfish. No, it's kind of special. You're going to get a set of rewards that are unique to you. Are you going to be jealous in heaven because somebody got a different set of rewards? No. Because <laughs> you got a new body that is no longer able to sin. You have a new body that the imputation of righteousness given to you at the moment of salvation is now lived in its full glory. Yeah, you can, there might be some temptations floating around, not in heaven, but you're no longer going to sin. How do we know that? Because Revelation 22 says no more death. Well, if there's no more death, there's no more sin. Because those two go hand in hand. So isn't that neat? Is did, why is it is it not a sin because God didn't because God took away all the rules? That's what some people want to do. Well, we're just going to decriminalize something. Yeah, that way we'll have have fewer crime breakers. But is it a moral thing that comes from God? Is the question you have to ask. Now, <clears throat> it's their theme song. It's a tribute to the Lord who protected every single one of them for the duration of the tribulation. Only the Lord could have fully protected this size group from all the persecution and disasters of the tribulation. Only the Lord. Think about that. 144,000 sealed, and 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And what happens in between? Well, let's say the Antichrist is after them with everything he's got. People don't like them. They want to take them out. They uh, they're they're not uh, uh, they don't fit in with the with the rest of the worldly crowd that is there. But then think about stars falling out of heaven, earthquakes, uh, all the natural disasters, which is God's judgment on the environment. When you start worshiping the environment, He just says, "We'll see about that." And so He he 
judges the environment. He did it to Egypt, and he's been doing it ever since. You start worshiping frogs, I'm going to kill all the frogs. I mean, you just don't want to do stuff like that. So here is here is this um, 144,000 that make it for the seven years through all kinds of natural disasters, people hunting them, people wanting to kill them, a lot of people dying and being martyred, and they stand there together. Now that's cool. No matter who you are. God has protected them. Again, God's not afraid of the devil, is he? He is able to put his mark on something and say, I'm going to protect it come hell or high water. And he does. Because that's what he has just done with them. Now, their victory in time. Now, this is cool. Because it says these are the ones who have not been defiled. The word is maluno for defiled. It's only used three times. It means basically to soil with a dirt of some kind. But it includes soiling of both a moral and a legalistic sense. Because there's a soiling that comes about because sometimes we legalistically hold to things that are not laws for us to hold to. And we hold them up as spirituality. That's called legalism. And you, you, baptism's probably one of the best ones. And that's the best way to get everybody mad at you is talk about baptism. Uh, but baptism, do you baptize? Do you completely immerse? I believe you do. Do you go three times underwater, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do you go backwards three times, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Do you go forwards three times? The Dunkards divided their whole dom- denomination over that. So it's not a laughing matter. You know, it's all legalism, isn't it? Because it says baptize. And baptize to me means immerse. So baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is what you do. The function is baptism. The form, he didn't spell out, did he? So when you ter- take the form and make it a special thing, then you turn it into legalism. And you miss the important stuff, which is the function. It's identifying you with Yeshua. You are one of His. These are the ones, verse 4, who have not been defiled with women. For they have kept themselves chaste. Literally says they kept being virgins. It uses the word parthenos here. Uh, literally, that's that's what it means. Same word used for Mary in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke 1. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased, our redeemed word once again, agarazzo, from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Now, these men not only physically survived the tribulation, but spiritually they were conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. They were called to celibacy, as was Christ, and they retained the standard. 144,000 of them. You think maybe some one of them would have slipped? This illustrates the principle of supreme sacrifice, which is an incredible witness in this age of compromise that ridicules morality. Here are these people... For seven years, they keep they they keep the law of the Lamb, because that's the law. These hundred and forty-four thousand are the first fruits of the millennial kingdom. When it starts out, hundred and forty-four thousand male virgin Jews to spread and repopulate this planet. Wow. And it wasn't 
just that they kept themselves morally pure. I used to be a Boy Scout. We had to take this thing. I promised to do my best to God and my country, obey the Scout law, to keep uh, myself clean. Anyway, to, to be physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. I think that's not in there anymore. That's sad. And no lie, sudas is the word. Used ten times. Used of Satan in John 8:44. He was a liar. He was a sudas from the beginning. Used of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9 and 11. So Satan and the Antichrist are liars, but no lie was found in their mouth, the 144,000. They are, oh, this is tougher yet. Amomas is the word translated blameless. Used nine times, it means without any spot or blemish. It's used to describe Christ in Hebrews 9.14 and in 1 Peter 1.19. Now, these men lived as close to a perfect life as you could live as a human being. These men will speak only truth for seven years and survive those who follow the lies of the Antichrist and his cohorts. These male virgins play a large role in the birth of the millennial kingdom. It's another kind of virgin birth in a sense. The biblical standard of being one of the 144,000 is an unbeliever at the rapture and left behind. If you're a believer at the rapture, you're not left behind. You're gone. An unbeliever has to be left behind. A male virgin Jew of one of the tribes of Israel except Dan. Another qualification from chapter 7. No sex for the length of the tribulation. No lie for the length of the tribulation. So, can you imagine these 144,000, they got this mark of God, seal of God on their foreheads, and the Antichrist puts a mark on the forehead or on the hand. His is a counterfeit, right? Trying to offset the mark of the Lamb of the 144,000. And so, uh, can you imagine, maybe one of them gets a little bit nervous and puts a big ball cap on, or a sock hat Hide this mark. And somebody says, are you one of them? Can't lie. These guys will be telling the truth for the entire seven years. No lie for the length of the tribulation and being Christ-like. You know what? We are called to be like the 144,000. Where did I get that? Amomas. Beautiful word. Without spot. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be hagios, holy, and blameless among us before Him. Ephesians 5, 24-28. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Love your wife as Christ loved the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that she should be hagias kai amomas, holy and blameless. Philippians 2. This is one of my favorite passages, that every time I think I'm doing something right, 
I get hold of this one because Philippians 2.14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many have you made all last week without doing that? <laughs> uh, it's one of those... <laughs> Matthew 5:48 verses be ye perfect as your heavenly father's perfect anytime you think you got it made do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be a momos blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights to the world we're supposed to be like those 144,000 morally in the way we think, in the way we act. Colossians 1, 21. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him hagias kai amomas, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Jude 24. This is a good benediction right here. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ Yeshua HaMashiach our Lord Adonai be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and the people said Amen let's pray thank you Father once again for your amazing word thank you for this blessing that we've had being able to celebrate who you are and to lift up praise to offer up the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of the lips that give praise to your name Father thank you for your word once again Thank you for the enlightenment that comes with it. But Father, we know with the enlightenment is the principle as well. That we need to be Christ-like in our thoughts and our speech and our actions. And Father, I pray you challenge each and every one of us this week to be just that. Father, may we do the things that are pleasing in your sight. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.